Welcome to the Real-Time Roots Podcast with Joy Belie. I'm Christy L, and we help you grow your own food and medicine so that you can create health and wellness for your family naturally. And this is my co-host, Sarah. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we'll be answering your questions about the simple lifestyle. Let's get started. Sarah, what's the first thing someone needs to learn to do for self-reliance to promote wellness and to save money? Well, there's a couple different ways to start, but a good one is always to start with what goes into our mouths. So starting with cooking, maybe cooking from scratch, or just learning one or two things to cook a little bit more from scratch than you used to. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I agree. I think scratch cooking is definitely the way to save money. It's also a way to eat healthier because packaged food contains all kinds of hidden sugars and hidden chemicals that you don't get if you're cooking from scratch. And then it's definitely brings you some confidence in, and some self-reliance. How would somebody get started cooking from scratch, Sarah, if they've been eating packaged food or, or even McDonald's for a long time? Well, it's always good to start with maybe a single dish, something really basic, maybe scrambled eggs. That's always a good one. And then gradually expand that, add a couple of vegetables, try a different way of preparing the eggs. And you can always grow from something that you already eat or you know that you enjoy. It doesn't have to be super complicated to start. I like doing eggs both scrambled, I like doing them hard boiled, I like doing them fried. There's dozens of different ways to make just that one protein source. And then they always go well with different vegetables from mushrooms to broccoli to spinach or even just with a salad even. I saw what you just did there, Sarah. You just have to sneak mushrooms in every time, don't you? <laughs> but I like mushies. Of course you like mushies because you grow them yourself. And, and that's amazing. Totally amazing. Tell me, Sarah, do you remember the very first time you cooked something from scratch? Do you remember what the meal was? I think I was about four when you taught me how to prepare scrambled eggs in the microwave. <laughs> I remember when you were 10, you made a, um, I think it was a lamb dinner. Do you remember that? You made an entire lamb dinner? Yeah, I was doing quite a bit of cooking in those years, but I know the eggs were actually a lot earlier. You learned early how to cook from scratch, but not everybody had the advantage of learning to cook from scratch. If you were teaching someone to cook from scratch, what would you start them with? Honestly, probably how to steam vegetables and probably how to fry different cuts of meat. Because with those two things and then adding in rice, you can have a balanced dinner and you can vary that however you like. That sounds great. Are you going to come over here and cook for me? All right, next question. If someone lived in a food desert and doesn't have a car, how would they connect to healthy food? Well, that's that's a tough one, Sarah. If someone's in a food desert... They, they don't have access to the same things that people that live in the city. And in fact, I live in a food desert. So like there are no grocery stores here. Um, there is one very expensive kind of convenience market and that's it. And even though I live in a small town, there's no grocery stores. So I totally get it. But 
you can still connect with healthy food if you grow it yourself. So you could be growing in containers, you could grow on a city lot, um, like if there's a vacant lot close by, or you can grow sprouts or microgreens or both in your own kitchen, right on the kitchen counter. And it doesn't take a lot of equipment. All you need to have is sprouting seeds and even a glass jar and a handkerchief over the top. It's very simple to get started sprouting. And then microgreens are a little more complicated because you need a sunny window to grow them in or maybe a light. But again, you can use the same seeds that you use for sprouting to grow microgreens. So they're very accessible and quick to get started. Did you want to add anything to that, Sarah? There's also the option of connecting with farmers or farms that are just outside of city limits. A lot of farmers markets or um, summer street markets will have food vendors and they're often close to the downtown or to the business sector in large cities. And there are also some farms that will deliver meat or vegetables to a central drop-off point within a city limit. So there are also other options outside of just your typical grocery store that you might be able to connect with to get healthy, local, and fresh produce and meat close to home. Those are great ideas, Sarah. Thanks. Next question. I'm worried about the supply chain breakdowns. What can I grow that would give me food fast? What are your ideas, Sarah, for food that that comes to harvest fast? Well, as we already mentioned, I like sneaking mushrooms in everywhere, so mushrooms are a great option. I've started some mushrooms growing and had my first flush from the bag within two weeks. So you can get a local, technically plant-based protein source very quickly and very easily with mushrooms. For gardening-related and high-caloric value Potatoes are a great option. They do take most of the growing season to grow to produce a full harvest, but you can also harvest potatoes when the plants are only about half mature because there's baby potatoes. So those take about, I think it was six to eight weeks to be able to get baby potatoes and then about, what, 12 to 16 weeks to get fully mature potatoes, Chris? Yeah, I I would say up to 20 weeks. Um, Just depends on where you live because the plants don't grow very well if it's super hot, but you can also grow sweet potatoes if you live where it's super hot. And I would say if you live in the northern areas, potatoes are really quick. And you can even grow, and I've done this, you can grow potatoes like in a in a bag, in a sack. Some people just put them on top of the ground and throw hay or straw on top or newspaper on top. So they're not even growing them in the soil. And then the other things that are really fast are things like peas. Like you can grow peas and not even wait for the fruit. You can just grow them as greens and then cut them off when they're about six inches high. And they will regrow a couple of times from that, even if they don't produce food like the the pea pods. And you can stir fry those or eat them in a salad. They're really actually very sweet and tasty. The, The tops of peas taste just like baby peas. What other plants, Sarah? Well, there's always the option of lettuces, kale, or spinach. Those are fast-growing greens, usually reaching maturity in 30 days or so. And if you have enough seed of those, those are often in the sprouting mixes as well. Personally, I also really like when the peas are growing, and I'm trying to encourage them to bush out to actually flower and produce pods. I will trim some of the growing tips 
when they're more than six inches high. I'll take off the top maybe three inches from the tip. And that area is still tender, even when you're working with a uh, month-old pea plant that is really bushy. So the growing tips on peas are always tender. You don't have to catch them when they're still really young. And they keep growing after, after you take the tip. So that's another point that you're not losing the plant if you take the tip. These are just like, we're just scratching the surface here. There are actually a lot of things that you can grow that will give you a harvest in, you know, just 30 days or, or 60 days. I think the important point is to just do something and get started. Just start one thing to, to get your own food growing, whether you do it in a pot, whether you do it in a cardboard box. For instance, I'm growing mushrooms just outside my door under a tree for shade in a cardboard box filled with coffee grounds from my favorite coffee shop. And they very graciously gave me some of their coffee grounds that they're discarding. And I threw some old mushrooms in it. And um, within about a month, I was getting mushrooms that I could harvest. And those same boxes that I did last year are coming back now this spring with more mushrooms. And I did nothing to them except just ignore them. So mushrooms are a great one, as Sarah said, and you're going to hear Sarah talk about mushrooms a lot because she mushrooms are her favorite thing. And she is a mushroom expert. She's even written a book about mushrooms called, what's your book called, Sarah? Uh, Growing Mushrooms for Beginners. But I'm also going to add that I just started a new batch of um, mushrooms growing using the trim dens from a recently harvested hand of oyster mushrooms and coffee grounds in a milk jug. So we're going to see how that one works fun. I think what I've learned from Sarah is that you can grow mushrooms just about anywhere, especially oyster mushrooms. Oyster mushrooms just seem to just want to grow. She's even grown oyster mushrooms in a coffee cup or was it a, was it a smoothie cup? I actually did both the to-go coffee cup and the smoothie cup. The smoothie cup has worked better. I've actually gotten two flushes off of it. Wow. That's incredible. If you are ready to start on your herbal journey to get to know herbs and make your own medicine, I've got the perfect next step for you. My membership, the DIY Herb of the Month Club, will help you get to know your herbal allies by studying one herb at a time. And we make a game of it. You will go on a 30-day journey with an assignment to do every day that will only take you 10 or 15 minutes. You'll go on a monthly quest to build your confidence so that you can learn to rely on your herbal allies. You'll invest just 5 to 15 minutes a day of hands-on guided exercises to gain knowledge of each month's herbal ally. You'll also learn how to grow, forage, or find each month's herb. You'll study the historical context of the medicinal and or culinary uses of each herb. You'll create a personal Materia Medica for long-term reference. You'll also study the modern scientific studies and evaluate their methodology and conclusions. And you'll engage your senses both logically and intuitively to get to know each herb really, really well so that you can use it confidently. So stir up some recipes with me and start using your new herbal allies for focused hands-on learning inside the DIY Herb of the Month Club. So I hope you'll decide to join me. The link is in the show notes. Sarah, 
if you were going to be looking for herbs and you didn't grow your own, where would you be looking? Well, a lot of my herbs I forage for, specifically ones that grow wild in my area, like the St. John's wort or the hawthorn wild rose and a couple other ones I look for in the wild. But I can also find many of the herbs I need, like basil, sage, oregano, thyme, from, say, the local health food store or the local grocery store. So there are lots of options for finding herbs, because a lot of our culinary herbs are also medicinal herbs. Where do you source your herbs from, Chris? Well, I do try to grow as many of them as I can, and every year I try to grow some new ones. But when I can't grow them because you know you only have so much of a season and my growing season is very short i do look first at my local health food store and then mountain rose herbs is a great one for having they they generally have in stock what i'm looking for so that's been even with some of the supply chain breakdowns usually mountain rose is pretty good about having things in and they're in oregon and so they're they're local to most of our listeners and also a few other places where I don't get herbs is usually Amazon. I try to avoid Amazon. So going on to the next question, Chris, what's a good first step for learning to grow your own food and herbs? I have this fabulous resource for teaching people how to grow their own food and herbs. And it's called joybeliefarm.com. It's our blog and website. And we have a philosophy of helping people take that first step of growing their own food, growing their own medicine. And we say, fail faster, just get started. Do one thing, just get started. And if it bombs, you will learn from it and then do it again. Do it better the next time. So the best first step is to visit joybeliefarm.com and then plant something. Plant something today and never give up. Can I recommend planting basil? Because it's delicious. And it grows fast. And it's a mint family plant. Sarah, who inspires you to be self-reliant? Well... Short answer is my husband and my daughter. We keep having minor health challenges. Like last week, my husband had a uh, suddenly abscessed tooth and was having shooting nerve pain. And if it wasn't for having St. John's Ward on hand, he would have not only been in a lot of pain, but had a very sleepless night before he could get into the dentist the next day. And even with the little one, most of what you can get for little ones in the grocery store for colds or congestion aren't really actually that helpful. So having a couple herbs on hand, safe oils for the diffuser, safe oils for a decongestant chest rub means that she can have a much easier time recovering from con the congestion that showed up this week. So really, it's family because the herbs work. I agree with you. When I first started in herbalism, it was my family that I was trying to help because we found that what we were experiencing going to the doctor and, you know, taking emergencies to the hospital meant sitting in the waiting room for a long time and then not necessarily getting the help we were after or the a correct diagnosis. And so taking our health into our own hands and taking responsibility for our own wellness meant that we had to visit the doctor a lot less 
and uh, we had much better health and much better understanding even of how our bodies worked and what would help when things showed up. And not just health, it also, there's self-reliance in our cooking, self-reliance in um, even our clothing. For a while, Sarah, you were doing some weaving. You've, you've even hand-spun and hand-woven some of your own clothes, I know. So self-reliance is a much bigger picture than just what you cook, what you eat, and what herbs you put in your body for health, right? It can be much broader than that. True enough. The... um jacket I made in grade 12 is still going strong. And that's more than 11 years now. Oh, could you imagine that a jacket that that lasted 11 years? It actually I saw it not too long ago, and it looks brand new. It's like and I know you wear it quite regularly. So I mean, there's something to say with those handmade clothes, right? Another question that came in, Sarah, the amount of verbal information out there is overwhelming. Where do I start? Well, as we said with learning to grow something, it's start small. One of our recommendations is to spend a month getting to know just one herb. There's no need to learn about a thousand herbs at once. Just getting to know 20 herbs total, one herb at a time over the course of a month, can be enough to help you have self-reliance for your own health because herbs have multiple actions. As an example of that, um, basil, it's one of my favorite culinary herbs. We recently did what we call an herb of the month focused on basil and basil individually has more than 20 different beneficial actions. And that's just one herb. I think you could say that with just about every herb. I mean, especially the ones that are very common, like culinary herbs. A lot of them are antimicrobial, um, antifungal, digestive. They help your they help digest your food. And a lot of them have like mood enhancing, relaxation kinds of actions. So yeah, just about every herb that are common, easy to get, have more than more than one or two actions that you can really rely on. Especially basil is a mint family herb and, and all of the mint family plants are very therapeutic and promote wellness and well-being. Chris, another question that came in was, what's the difference between herbs and essential oils? Oh, good question. So when you are looking at an herb, like a a plant, all herbs are plants. When you look at an herb, you're going to get, if you broke it down into its essential constituents, you get many constituents. And when they make an essential oil, they steam distill that herb by piling it all up in a pot and letting steam run through it. And then they capture the steam in the distillation process. And what that means in that steam is only the lighter molecules, the lighter constituents actually rise into the steam. So a whole bunch of the constituents of an herb are left behind in the pile of greens or flowers. 
And only the very lighter molecules end up in the essential oils. So basically what you're talking about with an essential oils is a the lighter molecules having lifted into the essential oil. So you're leaving a lot of the plant behind. So an essential oil is a concentrated plant, the aromatic molecules of the plant, very concentrated. So many, many pounds of plant material end up making the essential oil. On the other hand, you're leaving behind a lot of things like the flavonoids, the antioxidants, um, and those kinds of things. So what we find with essential oils is that a lot of them are very antimicrobial. A lot of them are, are antifungal, but some of the constituents like the antiviral constituents are left behind in the plant material. So what I like to do is combine essential oils with the herbs. Some herbalists, um, they'll say, oh, you shouldn't use essential oil at all because it's a waste of plant material. But I don't feel that way. I feel that for some applications, we do need the concentrated aromatics that we get from essential oils. And you don't need very much essential oils, just a few drops. And for other things, herbs are best. And so why not use both? What do you think, Sarah? I agree with you, Chris. The distillation process for essential oils sort of explains why we usually recommend when making tea for herbal purposes that you steep the tea covered so that you don't lose the aromatic compounds to the evaporation. But also uh, herbs can be used internally and they can be extracted in oil to use externally. The essential oils should not be used internally. They should only be used externally or for aromatherapy purposes and things like that. So they do also have different uses, even if you are using both the whole herb and the essential oils. So another question that came in talking about herbs was, my husband isn't interested in herbs. How do I get him interested in them? What do you think, Sarah? How would you get your husband interested in herbs? Well, we had the practical demonstration of the benefit of at least one herb, the St. John's wort, just a couple weeks ago with the severe toothache and nerve pain. And what I did with that was basically say this is the last thing we have on hand in the house that we haven't tried to cut the pain, so you may as well try it. And it worked within three minutes. Wow. And another thing I like doing is cooking with the herbs. I've been increasing the amount of culinary herbs I use in cooking. Instead of just using like a teaspoon or a tablespoon for flavor, I'll actually use a couple tablespoons. And a lot of the herbs I use in cooking now, I go based on what my body feels it wants. So just as an example, last night I ended up cooking up a delicious batch of lion's mane mushrooms in butter and cumin. Ooh, that sounds lovely. And it actually turned out very well. I was quite surprised. Okay, so you didn't invite me for dinner. I I think that that was a big mistake, Sarah. I think you should have invited me for dinner. <laughs> Yum, that sounds delicious. And then another way to increase the use of herbs in the house is very simply to make yourself herbal teas and offer them to the other people in the household. And a lot of times tea that's sweetened with honey or say a new blend I've been making which is peppermint and lemon lemonade 
with honey that's added when it's still hot is actually quite refreshing and cooling. And it sort of encourages the understanding of peppermint as an herb, as a cooling herb, and also just has the herbs around and available to consume and to enjoy without any strings attached, without any pressure. And it's just part of life instead of being the new thing. I think culinary herbs are a really great start too. Um, like you mentioned, using more cumin uh, when you're cooking up mushrooms. I think that a lot of times we think of herbs as being the heebie-jeebie thing instead of that they're just a natural part of life. It used to be in history that the herbs were essential because there wasn't refrigeration for food. And so food was heavily spiced to protect uh, people from foodborne illnesses. And um, I think we've gotten a little bit away from that because we have refrigeration and we have freezers and we, we have, you know, food safe. And so we feel maybe a false sense of security and using more culinary herbs and in higher amounts uh, would do a huge amount to helping our bodies to heal. And our bodies will heal if we give them the right antioxidants and flavonoids and flavor molecules. And so I think that that's a great thing to, to get husbands interested. And the other thing is, if we talk about them as herbs, it may just have that just the wrong connotation. Instead, if we talk about them as food, that it might be more um, easily accepted. The one thing I want to say, though, is you should never sneak medicinal herbs into somebody. You should always make them aware. I, I hear some herbalists suggest that you sneak it in, and I don't think that's ever a good idea because there has to be authenticity and honesty, especially when you're talking about husband and wife. And I've been married 40 years, so I think I have some authority in, in talking about this. I think it's really important for authenticity and honesty that we don't sneak herbs in, that we, we introduce them and we say, um, you know, this might help, and then let them make up their own mind. If growing some of your own food sounds like something you're ready to do right now, I've got the perfect next step for you. My Fill Your Salad Bowl workshop is a concise workshop that will show you how to grow enough greens to fill a salad bowl every day. That's a great first step, just to fill a salad bowl. It's not overwhelming and anyone can do it. You can do it even if you don't have any land, even if there's three feet of snow covering your garden, even if you've killed houseplants in the past, and even if you don't think you have a green thumb. Here's what we cover in this workshop. Now remember, it's a concise workshop. It's not gonna take a long time to go through, so everyone's gonna have enough time to do this. You'll learn three different salad green growing methods that you can implement right away. You'll learn the exact methods I use to keep my salad bowl full so I never run out, even if I have unexpected company. You'll also learn where to cut costs and still be successful growing salad greens at home. You'll learn the ideal equipment to use if you want to grow greens faster and easier. The unique pitfalls to avoid with indoor and container growing. You'll learn how to save a crop that goes wrong. Where to find organic seed at reasonable prices. How to store your seed so it stays viable for years so that you can save money now on bulk seed purchases. And you'll learn the health benefits of sprouts, microgreens, and healthy greens and how to optimize these benefits in the way you grow them and the way you store them. 
We'll also give you 17 ideas for using homegrown salad greens in the kitchen so they never get mundane. If you're ready to start growing some of your own food and you think salad greens are a great place to start like I do, check the link in the show notes. So I learned this really neat trick for extending ground beef. My mom used to put breadcrumbs or or cooked rice in ground beef to kind of extend it because, you know, we're trying to save money and um, in those days. And so you wanted one pound of ground beef to make a lot of hamburgers or a lot of meatloaf. So we would extend it with breadcrumbs or rice. And what I saw, I really love, they took mushrooms and you grind the mushrooms up like in a food processor so that they're about the same consistency as the ground beef. And then you just mix it up together and you can't even tell that there's mushrooms in it, but you've increased the vitamins, the minerals, and the protein just by adding mushrooms to the ground beef and it. It also extends it. That's pretty much what my uh, mushroom powder does, except it's a little bit finer grind than grinding up fresh mushrooms. Awesome. And I get to blend four different kinds together to do it too. Oh, how fun. What kinds of mushrooms? Tell me if I should come to your house for dinner. Uh, the current mix is a blend of uh, button and cremini mushrooms along with oyster mushroom stems from stuff that, well, pin sets that I didn't catch in time and were inside my fruiting bags. And then lion's mane and a little bit of reishi for flavor. So you dry them in your dehydrator, then you put them in a blender. Is that how you're getting the powder? I'm using a coffee grinder that I cleaned out specifically for mushrooms. I have also used the grinder to do powdered tomatoes and powdered zucchini for sauce thickening. My first sauce thickening blend was zucchini, tomato, and uh, lion's mane. Wow, sounds great. And then I had a lot of extra mushrooms, so I just decided to do a strict mushroom blend. Nice, nice, delicious. Do they add much flavor to your food? Does it taste mushroomy? Not really. I find it more just rounds out the flavor profile without actually standing out as an individual flavor. I put them in chicken soup. I put them in curry. I put them even in um, taco meat that I prepped. So they're actually quite versatile. Delicious. Quite delicious, I think. Also, with a tremendous amount of health benefits for your boosting your immune system and and helping your brain health and so much more. All mushrooms have health benefits. So we have today been answering your questions. And if you have questions that you would like us to answer in a future episode, go ahead and leave a comment below the show notes uh, with your questions. And we'll make sure that we add those to a future episode. Now, we always want to leave our listeners with one positive step that they can take to apply what we're talking about. And Sarah, can you just go through for us the steps on how to grow basil? Sure, Chris. So basil is a really friendly little herb, and all you really need to grow basil is some seed, some potting soil, a small pot maybe a six inch planter pot. And what you would do is dampen the soil, make sure it's moist and fill your pot to within 
half an inch of the top and then plant three seeds in a triangle shape in the pot and then just set that aside in a warm spot and you should see the basil seeds germinating usually within anywhere from three days to a week and it'll just pop up with two little leaves and then after a little bit they'll start growing their true leaves which will actually look like basil and you just monitor the pot water it when it gets dry down to about a quarter inch when they're first germinated and half an inch once they've gotten a little bit established and keep it in a semi-warm spot with lots of light you can go direct sun in a window ledge even and as long as you keep it watered the basil should grow and once it gets up to about two to four inches tall you can pinch the center growing tip to encourage it to branch out at each of the leaf joints and once it starts branching you can keep pinching off small amounts to use and it will keep growing and branching out as long as you have it in a good spot and keep watering it and if its growth slows down you can also get a um, fertilizer like a liquid fish fertilizer or even just some uh, banana peel water to give it a little boost so it'll keep growing and stay happy. And if you want the written instructions on how to grow basil, you can go to the website. That's joybelieffarm.com backslash how to grow basil. And there are dashes in between each of those words. So that's joybelieffarm.com backslash how dash to dash grow dash basil backslash. One of the things it does talk about in there are the different varieties of basil that you can grow. There are a lot of very interesting varieties. I'm growing two of them right now and there are way more than that. I think, I don't know, I think some catalogs have like 30 or 40 different varieties of basil to choose from. Um, do you have a favorite, Sarah? Is there a favorite one that you're growing? Well, the normal basil, sweet basil is usually called uh, Genovese basil, and that's a really easy one to grow. There's a purple variety of it. There's mini varieties. Um, there's a dwarf green basil that I've grown. There's a dwarf purple basil that I've attempted to grow, but it didn't really work out well. And my current basil that I'm growing is a giant one called lettuce leaf basil, and its leaves are nearly the size of my hand now. So I really like how that one's growing. But does it taste like? Is it like lettuce or is it like basil? Basil. Nice. That would be great for a wrap, wouldn't it? Yep. Caprice wrap with tomato and mozzarella is what I'm thinking of with it. Once I get enough leaves. Oh, yum. Yum, yum, yum. Well, thank you, Sarah, for joining me today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. As always, please share this episode, hit the like button, subscribe, and also leave a comment and let us know what you think. If you have any questions, if you'd like to add to what we've said, we welcome your comments. So thanks for joining us. Have a great day.